Amen. Well, if you have a Bible this morning, you can go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 2. That's where we're going to be. First paragraph in the second chapter of Hebrews. If you, uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, you should see one somewhere scattered out through the seating area. Uh, those are there for you to use and to take with you. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, we'd love for that one to be yours. And uh, so that would be our gift to you. Take it and, and read it. And we'd love to talk to you about what you find there. Hebrews chapter 2 this morning. My family has, for, for several years, gone to, actually, really, they've been doing this since before I was even born, almost every year to the Smoky Mountains, uh, either North Georgia or somewhere in North Carolina, just above the Georgia border. And one of the new traditions that we've got that's really just dates back maybe five or six years is we like to go whitewater rafting. Now, people who have really been whitewater rafting wouldn't call what we do whitewater rafting. We go on this, we go on this river called the Nantahala, and it's pretty much like the Cumberland with more rocks. Less water and more rocks, but the same basic pace as the Cumberland River. And so they let you, do your, uh, they let you guide your own raft, right? You get to, you, as long as you have enough people, you, you don't have to have a guide who's trained. You can, you can control it yourself because it's, it's really easy and tame. One of the things, in particular the last, group, the last outfit that we went with, one of the things that they tell you in your training, they give you like half an hour of guide training, right? Do-it-yourself guide training. And they say, you've got to be looking because when you get to the end where they're going to pull you out and put you back on a bus so you can go back to your car, uh, you've got to make sure that by the time you get there, you know where it is you're supposed to guide that raft to the, to the takeout point. Because if you don't, obviously the current is strong. It's going to carry you on. Right? You're going to drift from where it is that you're designed to go to who knows what waterfall is lying away for you. And the, the, last, the last one when the, that we did, there was actually ropes like hung across the river. And I don't know this for sure, but I think it was because people miss that, that takeout point and they've got to grab hold because they, uh, otherwise they're just going to keep on going. And we actually saw, I mean, pretty much, I think pretty much every time you go, you see somebody who misses that, that takeout point and they just keep drifting along. That's the image that I get when, when I read the first verse of chapter 2 because that's the, that's the image of the word that, that the author of Hebrews chooses for, for drifting away from Jesus, from the message that we've heard. And I think it's because the author of Hebrews knows that our Christian life is lived in a river of, full of, of, of strong current, a natural drift that's constantly pulling against us. So we have, we have all of these voices from the culture that speak into us, that tell us what we should be valuing, what we should find to be fulfilling and to be pleasurable. We have our own sin that's inside of us, not just problems outside, but, but in our own, our own hearts. Even as believers, we, are, we have a tug of war going on with the sin that still lives in us. And, and that tug of war, you could describe as a sense of drift, as a current that's carrying us. And if, we don't, if we're not very careful, vigilant even, about guiding the raft that is our spiritual walk to the correct point, then that drift is just going to carry us away. That's why the author begins this chapter saying, therefore, pay closer attention to what you have heard, lest you drift away. What he knew, what he's going to argue in this paragraph, what he's arguing really in the whole letter to Hebrews, is that Jesus is the only point on which you can fix your gaze, and all of your strength. He's the only goal or object for your spiritual walk that will keep you from just drifting away into destruction. What we want to do is try to unpack this paragraph to understand how it is, why it's so, rather, why it's so dangerous to drift from Jesus, how to understand or to see it when we have drifted from Jesus, and how to avoid 
drifting from Jesus. Those are the three steps we want to go through today. Why is it so dangerous? This is a warning passage after all. What does it look like to drift from Jesus? And how can we avoid it? Let's read the passage together. If you found it now, Hebrews chapter 2, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word as we read? This is the word of the Lord from Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared to us at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is God's word. You can be seated. So why is it dangerous to drift from Jesus? That's what we want to start with. Something we mentioned in the overview of the book, I guess this was about three weeks ago, in the introduction to all of Hebrews, one of the things you may remember we mentioned is, is how the author structures his book. How on the, they got almost two parallel lines that are running all the way through it. One of them is this really detailed, comprehensive, and beautiful argument about who Jesus is and about what makes him so beautiful. That's running this way. That was all of chapter one that we've looked at in the past couple of weeks. But then, running parallel to it, and, and coming out every now and then are these paragraphs in which he argues or urges his readers to do something with that information, where he is sort of applying it to them, almost like a preacher who's got a three-point sermon and, and gives you the point and then applies the point and gives you the next point and then applies the next point. But the beginning of chapter 2, that's where we come. It's the first, the first of several different application points that this author makes in this sermon to the Hebrews. It's a warning passage. Hebrews is full of these, a warning passage. He's warning his readers against something that he feels like they're in danger of doing. I don't know if you noticed this about chapter 1, but up until this point, we haven't seen one command yet. There's not one command anywhere in chapter 1. It's all about celebrating Jesus and his glory, all the things that make him who he is and worth following, worth staking your life to. No commands until you get to chapter 2. And when you get to chapter 2, all he says is, pay closer attention to what you've heard, lest you drift away from it. Now, I want to I get into the structure of this paragraph. That's what's going to help us understand with why it's so dangerous to drift. I want to make sure we, we understand really what is, is a simple point. It's a device that lots of people would use when they're trying to understand the Old Testament. It's really common for Hebrew scholars to use this device. Basically, it's a comparison between something that's greater and something that's lesser. Comparison between the greater and the lesser. That's what this paragraph is all about. Showing how Jesus' word is greater than previous words that were given. And if those previous words, which were not as good as Jesus' word, prove true, then how much more should we listen to what Jesus has to say? That's what he's going to say. Let me, let me show you how that works. So it starts in verse 1 with this conclusion that he's drawing. Therefore, you always know when that word shows up. You've got to look back, right? Because he's drawing a conclusion from what he said. And what has he said? He's, he's talked about Jesus for a whole chapter. He is the one who is the ultimate revelation of God because he is the exact imprint of the Father. He is the one who made purifications of sin, a perfect purification that doesn't have to be repeated, so perfect that he gets to sit down once and for all after he's done it. He is the one who created the world, and so when he speaks, he speaks with authority. 
He is the only one who is not subject to the process of decay that takes everything that we see with it. He lives forever. While things come and material things come and go, Jesus is the same and his years have no end. Those are the kinds of themes that we've explored through chapter 1. So therefore, if Jesus is who he's saying that he is, pay closer attention lest you drift away. So why would it be so bad to drift away? What's the danger there? Verses 2 through 4 clarify that for us. So if, if verse 1 draws a conclusion from chapter 1, the next few verses give a foundation for what he said in, in verse 1. You can see how it's sort of a circle. These things are true, therefore, because. And I was going back to, to justify why it's so important to pay attention. For, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable... Since the things that that they said came true, how much more would you want to listen to this greater message? Now, when he says the message delivered by angels, what what I never would have gotten if I had not read some commentaries on this is that that's actually a shorthand way of referring to the law. Jews of this time believed that, that angels were the ones who delivered the law to Moses. So it came through Moses, but also through an intermediary who took a message from God to Moses. Angels, the, the word for angel is actually messenger. In Greek, the one that would have been used here. So they were the messengers. And if, so if the law and all of its provisions prove to be true, then how much more will Jesus prove to be true? And how do we know that the law proved true? I mean, we just, we just spent the whole fall studying the minor prophets, which is, which is one example after another of the, the, the curses in the law coming true for Israel. All those things in the law that say, if you do this, you will live. If you don't do this, then you will be cursed in these following ways. Those play out when, when Israel abandons, abandons the, the law of God. When they break it without any remorse, they are judged for it. So, so basically the author is saying, you know your history. You know that the law that was given actually did. The things that were promised there actually came about. So if that's true, how much more should you pay attention to this word? Because this word's through Jesus. Look at verses 3 and 4. He, he, uh, he lists off all the things that were true of the giving of this word that weren't true of any other word. This one comes by the Lord directly from the mouth of God himself. This one is attested by those who heard, by eyewitnesses who actually saw him and heard it from his own mouth, who saw him risen after his death on the cross. It came from, it's attested by those who heard. It was, it was supported by God himself through signs and wonders and miracles. All, think of all the things that you read about in Acts through the early expansion of the church, all of these dramatic displays of God's power attesting to the validity of this word. And finally, it was attested by the gifts of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who is actively changing you and other people that you know, who, who, who brings about the things that the gospel promises in real time in a way that's obvious to you, that's visible. So if the word is attested in all of these ways, the point is, I think it's clear, you can bank on it. You can bank on it. If you can bank on the angel's word, the lesser, you can bank on Jesus' word. Think about the difference between a telescope like the one Galileo must have used, the fact that that proved reliable. How much more should we trust a telescope that was created this year at some well-funded university that's up on the top of a hill somewhere, like the one at, at Vandy's observatory? How much more can we trust that one if the old primitive telescopes prove reliable? How much more? This one. That's, that's the point. But we've got to come back to our original question. It's, it's, it's this. Why is it so dangerous to drift? Because 
really, this word that we're told to listen to, it's not just a recommendation. It's not just you would do well to listen to this word because it's trustworthy and reliable, so you can, you can bank on it. It's more than that. It's actually a warning. There's an edge to it. It's a lest something horrible happen to you. I mean, he, he calls it a great salvation. That's a positive spin. But he says, how will we escape if we neglect this great salvation? There's an edge to it, right? What, it, what is that? What's the danger? I think we have to infer here. We don't have a, obviously, there's no smoking gun. He doesn't spell this out. I think the point is, if this is what had to be done for you to get saved from the real problems that you have, then how are you going to escape through some other measure, right? If it took God himself coming to earth, dying a death that we should have died, triumphing over death through his resurrection, living perfectly in a way that none of us ever have, if it took all of that, if that's the solution, then how are you going to escape if you neglect this great salvation? Think about everything that's said in chapter 1 that we just rattled off. That's what's in his mind. That's the great salvation. If that's what it took, do you really think you're going to get that somewhere else? How are you going to escape if you neglect it? I think ultimately it's a statement. There's an implication here about how, how severe our needs are, how serious and all-pervasive is the problem of, of sin. I love the way that the old Easter hymn, or Good Friday hymn, stricken, smitten, and afflicted, puts it. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here at the cross may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, the Son of Man and the Son of God. If you think your sin's not a problem, look at what God had to do to fix it. And now imagine you can get that kind of solution anywhere else. That's the point of that first paragraph. Can you escape? It's a rhetorical question. That's the danger of neglecting Jesus. So what does it look like? What does it look like to drift from Jesus? How would we know if we've done it or if we're in danger of it? Right? We have to understand the way of the warning and to be prepared for the solution that's embedded in this paragraph. We've got to understand, we've got to see ourselves in it. We have to know if we are in danger of guilt on this point. Now, Honestly, we've got to take a little detour from this paragraph to understand the point of the paragraph better because it doesn't really get us there. But Hebrews does, and certainly the wider testimony of the New Testament does. It points us to things we can look for to know if we're in danger of drifting from Christ and, and therefore not escaping what's meant for us. I, I, let me just point out three different things, I think, three kinds of drift that come up regularly in our experience and that are pointed to in Hebrews and in the rest of the New Testament. Three kinds of drift. This is what it looks like, among many other things. It looks like this. We drift from Jesus and his gospel when other things seem more interesting to us, right? Sometimes, especially if you were raised in a, in a Christian family, I imagine that, that those of us for whom that's true, that this is especially a problem for, sometimes the gospel just doesn't seem that interesting, that compelling, We've, we, we feel as if we've known it forever, as if we're not getting anywhere by looking at it more closely, as if we can move on to deeper or better things. 
Or maybe it's not, not that it's boring, but just that it isn't compelling at all compared to other things that are out there competing for our attention. Some things seem more plausible. Some things seem more exotic. That was certainly the problem for the Hebrews, right? Chapter 1 was all about convincing the Hebrews not to trust angels, not to be more interested in angels than they were in Jesus. You can understand why they would have been. Angels seem exotic, right? Spiritual beings that you can't really see, but sometimes you can, and they, they come with lots of light and flashy colors. But Jesus was just a man who died this shameful death. I mean, who, compared to him, the way that they were understanding him, angels seem more interesting. For us, it's not going to be angels probably, but it might be, it might be some philosophy that you're learning about at school. I mean, that happened to me in many different times. I've encountered new ideas that seem more compelling to me than the old ideas of the gospel, which seem, by comparison, sort of primitive. Sometimes it's the pleasure of sin, right? Things that the gospel stands opposed to seem to us more interesting or compelling than the nature of the gospel message itself. All of us have experienced that. Hebrews, those to whom this letter was written, were certainly experiencing that. We're going to see that in later references to it in the letter. Sometimes the gospel doesn't seem interesting or compelling. And when that happens... We're in danger of drifting from Jesus. Here's another one. We drift from Jesus when other things seem safer or more respectable. This was certainly one of the challenges facing the Hebrews. We're going there later. I mean, as we get further into this letter, we're going to see several references to to the tribulation and persecution, to the, the great challenges that they were faced with because of their identification with Jesus. They had been Jews. Jews were protected by Roman powers. It was a that Jews were a legal registered religion in the Roman Empire, and Christianity was not. And so as Christians begin to distance themselves from, from Judaism, as it becomes clear they're not just a Jewish sect, they're their own thing, then the heat starts to get turned on, and they start to become more and more in danger of losing their lives or their livelihoods or their families, and, and that's certainly something that's happening to these Hebrews. Identifying with Jesus wasn't safe at all. Now for us, we don't deal with that. Not, not really, not living in this city. Some of you may be you know, thinking about missions and places where that's definitely going to be an issue for you. But for most of us who are going to stay right here in Nashville, we're not likely in our lifetime to face any sort of physical threat by, by, uh, by our connection to Jesus. But, but we still want other people to like us, to prove of us, to be impressed by us, to think of us as clever and insightful, to be, to be thought of as wise. And there are any number of things that seem more wise and clever and insightful than the gospel on the surface, right? There's nothing broadly impressive at all about the gospel that's described in Hebrews with all this talk of blood and sacrifice and sin that makes these things necessary. I mean, those concepts alone, even the words themselves, they, if, if they're not spoken in church, if we were just to hear them in normal conversation, things like blood sacrifices and, and sin, they, they just don't sound right. They don't sit well with us. There's almost a visceral reaction against them. They're not respectable, far from it. It's much easier to be interested in things like social justice and making a difference in the world, right? Implications of Christianity for sure. But on their own, who doesn't think those are good ideas, right? So as a Christian, if you identify more with the work that you're doing to help people than you do with the gospel that's been, that, that carries a word of, of things done for you, not that you've done, it's easier to be respected by people, right? Even atheists are glad when those things are done. But affiliating with Jesus on the level of the gospel itself is something that costs us respect and isn't always safe. And and when when we feel that, when we connect with that reality, we start to drift. 
We start to want other things. Finally, here's just another example. We drift from Jesus when other things seem more relevant than Jesus and the gospel promises that he offers. Now, none of us, there is not one of us sitting here for whom this has not been true at some point, right? Sometimes we lose touch with the gospel just because it seems abstract compared to the things that we go through on a daily basis. Even if we like the sound of it, even if we're attracted to Jesus at some level, we have to ask ourselves sometimes, what does this message about what he's done have to do with our problems, with our busy lifestyles? We've got tests, we've got deadlines, we've got jobs to do and jobs to get. We've got kids to follow around. We've got kids to try to shape into responsible human beings. These are things that fill our minds, right? These are the things that fill our hearts, our desires. They drive us. And sometimes this, excuse me, this gospel message about Jesus and what he's accomplished seems so far removed from everything that's in our life, what's relevant to us, that it just loses its luster. We, we, we have a hard time holding on to it. It doesn't seem relevant to us. And when that happens, we drift from it. Just like in the parable of the soils, Jesus describes the seed that's sown among the thorns, which gets choked out by the cares of this world. Isn't that us? Doesn't that describe what happens to us? when our busy lives seem disconnected from the gospel that we're called to? If that's what it looks like, how do we avoid it? How do we avoid drifting from Jesus? I think we've seen, hopefully seen clearly why it's dangerous. That's what the, the paragraph is mostly designed to do as a warning to us. Don't neglect this salvation. This is what it takes for your problems to get solved, they're this bad that God had to do it himself. So if you look elsewhere, you're not going to find what you're looking for. Don't, don't neglect it. That's the danger. We've seen, hopefully, what it looks like or some examples of what it might look like to neglect him or to drift from Jesus. So if we've seen ourselves there, if we've seen ourselves as candidates for neglecting or drifting from this great salvation, what do we do? How do we avoid it? That's ultimately the question we all want to answer, right? But the answer, the answer that the, that the author to Hebrews leads with, really the, the main overall point of this paragraph is not the kind of answer that, that we probably would expect. Verse 1 says, Therefore, because Jesus is who he is, pay closer attention to the things that you've heard, lest you drift from it. If you don't want to drift from it, his solution is, Pay closer attention to the truths about Jesus and the gospel promises that he offers. It's that simple. It's that streamlined. This is the first command. I mentioned this already. This is the first command in all of the book. He leads with something as simple as pay closer attention to the gospel. He doesn't write them a manual. He doesn't give them a a sort of how-to guide for dummies. You know those yellow books and paperback that you can get uh, just about any subject that you want? He doesn't give them one of those. He, He celebrates the glory of Jesus. To keep them from drifting away, he gives them more, and he says to think harder. He reminds them that Jesus alone is the exact imprint of the Father, that Jesus alone speaks with the authority of the one who made the world, upholds the world, and has the right to rule the world. Jesus alone is the one who made purification for sins and sat down forever at the right hand of God and offers life in him to all who will come. He celebrates who Jesus is and then says, pay closer attention. Now the point is that when we struggle to connect with Jesus, 
and with this gospel about him. When we sense ourselves drifting from it because it's too abstract or not compelling or it seems unrespectable, the solution is not in Jesus but in us. That's his point, I think. Or excuse me, the, the, the problem is not in Jesus but in us. The problem isn't in anything having to do with him because everything that he has done is, is perfect. It's complete. The problem must be in our level of attention, in our engagement and consideration of, of truth about him. If we're not seeing its beauty, if we're not drawn to what he said about Jesus, it's because we're not paying close enough attention. Now, I immediately thought, recognizing that's what this author is going for, I immediately thought of myself and the way that I engage with fine art. And I'm trying to become a more diversified person, and so I'm trying to understand it. And I do enjoy it to some extent. And we go to art museums, and we go to other cities, and every now and then the Frisk gets something worth seeing, and we'll go down there. But when I go into one of these museums, unless, unless there is a card under that picture telling me exactly what it is I'm supposed to like about it, then I might have some sort of emotional response to it. I know that's a major part of what art's about, but I'm not understanding it, right? And honestly, I mean, if I'm just being totally honest, if you put me in a room without any placards explaining anything, and you put a a picture by a medieval master over here and one that's created on a computer and mass-marketed for Target right here, I'm probably not going to be able to tell you which one is which. I mean, maybe if I had to get to feel it and I could, I could tell the difference between something that's printed and something that's actually painted, but, but in terms of the actual quality of the picture, of the artistry in it, I'm not trained to know what makes this a masterpiece and this a nice ripoff for twelve ninety nine. And the, the problem, of course, is not in the picture. It's in me. The problem is that I'm just not trained to look hard enough and to recognize what it is that I'm seeing. For me to blame the art would be ridiculous. It would be ignorant and foolish. What I need is, is to look harder, to look with understanding. That's the author's point here. If you're neglecting Jesus, if you're drifting away from him, the solution is not a, a well-thought-out 12-step program. It's simply to pay closer attention to the basic gospel truth of who Jesus is. I don't know how this strikes you, but this one's a little tough for me to swallow because I think what I always crave, maybe you're like me, is I crave some list that I can master, that I can check off. I want a clear to-do or how-to manual that I can use, that I can, that I can ultimately have under my control, right? Because if it's as simple as walking through these four steps and you get a great relationship with Jesus, then, then, then that's in my control. I can, I can plan out my time around m- m- moving through those steps in an efficient, comprehensive way. I mean, ultimately, I'm a graduate student forever, I think. I want a syllabus. Just give me a syllabus. And I, and I feel like I've got it, right? But there's no syllabus for this, any more than there's a syllabus for having a healthy relationship with my wife, right? There are certainly good things that I can do. I can pay closer attention to her. I can understand her better and what she likes and doesn't like. I can try to go out of my way to... to, to give her the things that she likes and to do the things that are meaningful to her. And over time, hopefully, over the course of a marriage, we can become better in our relationship with each other, right? That's the way a relationship works. But there's no perfect syllabus. There's no magic incantation that I can pronounce and all of a sudden Lindsay feels about me exactly the way I want her to, right? It's something that is organic and it changes over time and it just requires paying much closer attention to your subject. I think that, that ultimately that's what's required in our relationship with Christ because it isn't, he is not a subject to be mastered. He is a person to be lived with, to be savored, to be, 
shaping your life around in every sort of in every sense that your life has any meaning at all it's got to be filtered through this relationship with him there's no syllabus for that right that's why the author doesn't go there he just says pay closer attention pay closer attention ultimately don't hear me wrong jesus and the gospel promises that he offers to us are incredibly practical and i deeply believe that if we get the gospel into our DNA, that it will affect how we parent, how we seek and perform our jobs, how we conduct ourselves in relationships with other people. It's practical to the nth degree. The problem is that we often want to put the cart before the horse. We often want to start with the how-to. Get me from point A to point B. Give me some steps that I can work through to have a, a wonderful Christian life. Rather than starting with the person that's going to drive the whole thing, Jesus is the horse, not the cart. So we start with him. We go deep on him. We work our, our hardest to try to understand him and everything that's been told to us about him. There's no quick fix. If you find yourself stuck in your relationship with him, any more than there's a quick fix to weight loss, that's any kind of alternative to healthy eating and good exercise. It's about lifestyle and engagement. It's not about how-to's. The problem is that in all the disciplinary programs we might try to put ourselves on, what we know from experience is that there's no power in them. There's no power in those programs. They're just another law that we put on top of ourselves. What we need is the Spirit, the gift that's mentioned in this paragraph as that thing which testifies to the power of the Word to change us, to change our hearts and what we like, to give us a clearer vision of Jesus for who he really is and to make the things of the world seem to us like they really are in all of their emptiness. What we need is to see Jesus as the well from whom we draw. That's where the power is, right? It's in an affection for him, a a joy that's drawn from the deep well of his perfection, of his beauty, of his self-emptying love. When we connect with those things, then it works itself into the details of our lives like we're looking for. And, and the final thing I want to say, I want to speak to two groups of you this morning. If, if there are those among you who, who are not yet followers of Jesus, who are still considering how you, where you stand with him, then I want to challenge you on this point. If you're not a believer, and if you're skeptical of Christianity like, like many of us have been at one point in our lives, I wonder if you've truly given fair weight to Jesus in your consideration of Christianity. Have you really looked closely at Jesus as you have weighed Christianity and whether or not it can sustain you, whether or not it's worth considering or committing your life to? Or could it be true that you have so far judged Christianity by the bad track record of Christians, by people who have then off-putting to you in the name of Jesus, maybe even clearly immoral in the name of Jesus. Maybe you have fixated on things in the Bible that seem unscientific, unscientific or, or maybe culturally irrelevant, primitive. Now, there are, there are any number of things that could be on your radar along those lines that we would want to talk to you about uh, point by point. I don't want to minimize the importance of those issues. I just want to say don't let your consideration of Christianity stand or fall based on one of these tertiary points, but go to the heart of it. Go to the founder of the faith, the one whom all Christians profess to be following, and weigh Christianity with him. Look to the Gospels. 
Look to the accounts of his resurrection. Look to the historical phenomenon of the growth of the church in the midst of intense persecution because these people believed they had seen with their own eyes Jesus alive after they knew for a fact that he was dead. Look at those things. Consider Jesus and make your decision there because if Jesus is who he says he is, then these other issues fall into line under him. Ultimately, don't reject Burger Up because you don't like McDonald's, right? They're not even the same thing. Go to Jesus. Second, if you're a believer this morning and you're sensing yourself drifting, maybe, maybe you saw yourself in some of these categories that I threw at you. Maybe, maybe you're in, at the university and you know that your friends who you, you respect because they're smart and you want to be thought of as smart by them think that the gospel is yesterday's news. Maybe even think that it's barbaric. Or if you're someone who's just exhausted and, you, and your, your life is wearing on you and you don't see how Jesus has anything to do with it at all. If you just are stuck in a rut and you can't seem to make any progress in your relationship with him. I know from experience that what we're looking for is something to grab hold on. Give me something to do. And I don't want to I don't want to put you off of all attempts at self-discipline because I think those matter. I just don't want you to start there. If you sense that you're, that you're in a rut, ask yourself this. How much time do I spend thinking about Jesus? How much time do I spend actually praying to him, engaging him in relationship? If you're doubting the relevance of Jesus or looking for something to supplement him and his gospel, don't give up, but go deeper. That's the point. Pray to him for sight. Confess sin to him that may be keeping you from engaging with him on the deep level that you need to. Reflect deeply on Jesus' life and his teachings in the gospels. Go to the gospels. Read the accounts of what Jesus did and what he said. Let those percolate in your mind until until you really come to grip them. Chew on them. And ask him to give you joy in what you read. Ultimately, there's no quick fix. we just got to look to Jesus and pay closer attention. Would you pray with me as we ask God to help us do that? Father, the cares of this world are so vivid. Our minds latch onto them. Because they present themselves to us fresh and new every day. We all want to know where our security can be found. We want financial security. We want more stuff. We want people to like us. We want kids that are perfect. We want all of these things that are constantly in our minds and and, and pulling at us for our affections. And in that context, it is so hard for us to claim, to lay hold of this ancient message that promises life forever. Would you help us to cut through what, what is lacking in our ability to, to pay attention? And would you make these truths about Jesus seem far from abstract, seem real and alive and beautiful and compelling to our hearts? That's what we need. Would you present Jesus to us through the power of your spirit, attesting to this ancient word? Would you present Jesus to us in a way that leaves us blown away by him? And clinging fast to him, don't let us drift, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.